Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. As a nation, we're dealing with a public health crisis. It's a crisis that experiences a set of unique challenges and being recognized. During the last year, it's been overshadowed by COVID. Historically, it's been criminalized. Socially, it's been stigmatized. And personally, there is a shame and social isolation that surrounds it. This public health crisis accounts for hundreds of thousands of deaths every year, as well as untold numbers of secondary infection and increased health and social risks. This crisis is the prevalence of overdose and overdose deaths occurring within our country. Here today to talk with us about this crisis and a new program initiated by the CDC and administered by the National Council for Mental Well-Being is Shannon Mace. This program's primary focus is on harm reduction. Shannon is a senior advisor at National Council for Mental Well-Being with over 12 years of multidisciplinary experience in the fields of public health, behavioral health, and poverty law. At the National Council, Shannon leads projects focused on improving care for those with substance use disorders. In addition to her role at the National Council, Shannon is a co-founder of the Health, Education, and Legal Assistance Project, a medical legal partnership at Widener University Delaware Law School. Shannon, welcome to our show today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. You know, I want to jump into this program now that You're in the process of navigating and and administering here. But before we jump into it, I would love our listeners to have kind of a two-minute drill of your personal history, your story, and kind of what brought you into this professional endeavor. Sure. So I am originally from central Pennsylvania. I grew up in what's known as the coal region, a very economically depressed part of the country that has suffered greatly from the current opioid crisis. My personal background is that I had two parents who both suffered with opioid addiction Mm. and had many health-related problems to their drug use. And grew up knowing that I wanted to do something that would help folks like my parents. I eventually went to college in Philadelphia at Temple University and studied biological anthropology and went on to go to law school from there and also studied public health when I was in law school. I had no business of being in law school. When I was there, I didn't know what I wanted to do other than sort of health folks and quickly understood the connection between our society around us and our laws and sort of these social and systemic factors and how they impact health. And that's sort of where I Mm. focused. And after I graduated from law school, I took a position with the Philadelphia Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services, where I focused on health reform and health equity. And my career since then has really focused on this intersection between the social and structural determinants of health and how we can better address them and really rethink how we approach healthcare and health services and social services in our country. Really good. One of the things we're talking about today is this program that you are managing the initiation of and and, and getting it out there. And we're talking about this harm reduction idea. Define for us, what is harm reduction? How can we think of that? Sure. So harm reduction is really a public health approach. So you can think about harm reduction as a set of strategies, but it's really a lot more than that. I mean, harm reduction is really a movement and a philosophy that's grounded in foundational principles and values. 
simply stated, harm reduction is really meeting people where they're at, but not mm. leaving them there. Yeah. But behind that, when we think about a harm reduction approach, which is simply focusing on reducing harm, we think about values like in the context of drug use, recognizing that drug use is complex and there's factors that contribute to it and that there are ways to use drugs that are safer than others. Focusing on the quality of a person's life rather than outcomes like cessation and also focusing on community health. So not just thinking about an individual level, but what types of interventions and strategies really focus at the community level. Harm reduction is really grounded in serving people in a non-judgmental way and ensuring that the people who are served, so when we're thinking about drug use, you know, folks who use drugs are involved at every step of our public health planning, implementation, and evaluation level. So really making sure that those voices are driving what's happening. So really, I think harm reduction is this movement grounded in these social justice principles. I really like that. You know, oftentimes we think about, you know, the different levels of prevention or intervention, and we think about primary intervention or primary prevention or secondary or tertiary. And what I'm hearing you say here in just a matter of fact way that I think is an important as a cornerstone to our talk is that you're accepting that people are and are going to use and in an effort to basically save lives and to improve public health, you're looking to employ these not, I love that word, non-judgmental strategies and these strategies to look at mitigating the harm of the drug use, these strategies that in order to be successful are working to really ideally decriminalize the, the way that we see drug use. Socially, we're trying to bypass the stigma associated with substance use. And it sounds like to help folks that are using avoid some of the shame and the secondary isolation that can happen that are common to them and the drugs that they're using. Absolutely. Certainly. And sadly, you know, in our society, we have stigmatized and moralized this issue of drug use, but it's some drugs and not others, right? We all mm. use drugs. I have a Diet Coke sitting next to me during this conversation, right? And it's a really nonsensical way that we have built our system to address drug use. It, it does not benefit anyone the way that it's been done. And harm reduction really is a common sense approach to helping people. I really like that. So this idea, this harm reduction, Let's shift a little bit then. Let's talk about the National Council for Mental Wellbeing and your efforts to administer the CDC's new initiative that implements these harm reduction strategies and programs. Jump into that for us. Yeah, the National Council has worked with the CDC for many years now on a variety of different public health initiatives. They've been great partners. And for several years now, we've been focusing on overdose prevention. This past year, we started a new initiative with them, which it's a mouthful, preventing overdose and increasing access to harm reduction services during the COVID-19 pandemic. I won't say that again. I'll spare the listeners. But really, the goal of this initiative was to quickly fund community-based syringe services programs and harm reduction programs so that they had a bit of extra financial support during the pandemic to implement these innovative and adaptive practices that we knew were needed during the pandemic because the pandemic caused so many disruptions. Mm -hmm. 
So part of this initiative is the direct funding. So we were able to grant a total of $500,000 to 16 grantees, which was amazing. And we also focused on creating some resources and technical assistance support, just thinking about some of the challenges nationwide harm reduction organizations were facing and trying to disseminate best and promising practices. It's really good. In terms of some of these practices, you guys have quite a range of approaches that you're using in terms of addressing harm reduction from syringe to, you know, naloxone and, and talk about some of these strategies and approaches you guys are using that you're finding some real value in. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the great things about this opportunity is that we really wanted the organizations to direct what they were going to do with their funding and to use the funding to support the interventions they knew worked in their communities. Yeah. And that made the most sense to them. So there are a large range of interventions that were supported with these dollars. So you mentioned a few of them. So naloxone distribution is huge. We know naloxone saves lives and it's most most effective when it's in the hands of people who use drugs themselves and their friends and family members. So making sure that these harm reduction organizations are able to distribute that is essential. And some other services, of course, uh, syringe uh, services programs or syringe exchange. One of the interesting things that happened during the pandemic is Many places close their doors, including harm reduction organizations, so syringe programs. So they had to start to think about how can we get these life-saving resources in the hands of our participants while complying with these stay-at-home orders and reducing risk. So a lot of initiatives that we funded from several grantees were focused on increasing their mail-based supply distribution. So you know, being able to actually mail supplies to folks or do mobile delivery of supplies. So one grantee, for example, purchased a van with their funds so that they could get to the rural parts of Illinois to actually deliver supplies. We're also seeing an increase in fentanyl and the drug supply, of course. So making sure that folks have access to drug checking equipment like fentanyl test strips was really important. There really is a whole host and you know, we're thinking now and talking about harm reduction from a drug use perspective, but of course, COVID is happening at the same time. So we also had grantees that use their funds to support things like getting PPE out to their participants, Mm -hmm. so masks and gloves. And we had one grantee that actually used their funds to have a nurse conduct street outreach to increase vaccine access to participants as well. So thinking about those dual public health challenges. I want to acknowledge a little bit later on, just kind of the innovation and creativity that some of these folks have done just to find, you know, basically there's a need and they're saying in order to save lives, what can we do to meet this need within some of the restrictions that we have? But what you want to highlight something you're talking about here, there are contributing factors, aren't there, that have led to the increase in drug overdoses and deaths. You talk about drugs that are tainted and how you guys can have some drug checking equipment now to make sure that they're not tainted with something lethal or kind of widespread availability. Say a little bit more about some of the contributing factors that makes this such a a challenging area, including isolation from the COVID-19, like you mentioned. Yeah. So starting with isolation, and that's a huge one because we know prevailing an effective message related to using drugs is never use alone, right? You want 
to be with someone in case you do overdose, that someone could be there to administer naloxone or call emergency services. And during the pandemic, what was our message to everyone? Be alone, right? Isolate. So it's really a challenge when you're thinking about the best way to serve participants and how you reconcile those two messages, right? right? And through that, I think there was a lot of innovation in terms of leveraging technology. So we Mm -hmm. saw several nonprofit organizations that are led by people who use drugs or people who formerly use drugs created never use alone lines. So you can actually call a hotline um, and you have someone virtually with you. And there's a process in place if, for example, you don't respond after a certain amount of time, you're giving them permission to call emergency services or a friend if you're not comfortable with emergency services. So we did see a lot of innovation with that regard. But to your initial question, certainly isolation was a contributing factor to the rise in overdose rates. The drug supply itself, we know that fentanyl or fentanyl analogs have been present not only in heroin and other opioid drugs, but we're seeing overdose rates increase in stimulant drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine due to adulteration with fentanyl as well. And and that has been seen as a huge contributor to overdose as well. I think related to the COVID-19 pandemic, we also know that there's been an increase in other mental health conditions. So folks are really suffering from higher rates of depression and anxiety. And from uh, a lot of social loss, so things like losing your job, losing your housing, all of the economic and social consequences that folks have experienced related to the pandemic also are contributing factors to to increase substance use. Yeah, as you talk about these contributing factors, I'm, I'm appreciating, you know, what the lawmakers are beginning to see. And including, you know, nonprofit community-based organizations and supporting overdose prevention, it seems like their attention to this is highlighting their growing recognition of the role of harm reduction organizations and, and, and the role you guys play in preventing overdose and also overdose deaths and limiting the spread of other infectious diseases that makes it a public health crisis as well. So they're coming around. Yeah, I think that's a very true statement. We have seen an increased recognition of the importance and effectiveness of harm reduction strategies in the last couple of years that I would, without having data to prove, I think are probably on a historic level in terms of the amount of funding that's been allocated and just the federal recognition that these strategies work and they should be implemented. Just recently, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, announced their comprehensive overdose prevention strategy a few days ago, and harm reduction was really prominent in that as well, which is great. These are evidence-based practices. The science is not in dispute. So these are the, the activities that should really be funded. How do you find the opportunity or how have you created the opportunity when you talk about all these different agencies, the 16 different base programs, and how do you talk amongst one another to say, hey, you know, here's a need we saw and, and here's how we responded to it. Maybe you have that in your community or, hey, here's a, here's a need that we've got and we don't know how to approach it. How are you guys managing and responding to something similar? Do you get kind of an opportunity to kind of ping back and forth around what's working and 
what some needs are that are best met in certain ways, even like you're saying, uh, research-based ways and, and, and efficacious ways. How do you guys talk, talk with one another? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I want to say outright that I am not the expert, certainly. Like we at the National Council see ourselves as a convening organization when it comes to this and as an amplifying organization. The folks who have been working in communities under sometimes really dire circumstances when it comes to the legal environment or the funding environment truly are the experts. So our grantees are the ones who hold the knowledge. And that's largely because they listen to their participants and who they're serving. But we do like to capitalize on our role as sort of being able to bring folks together to have conversations. In this case, with this group of 16 community-based providers, we host regular calls, convene folks around particular topics they might be interested in. So an example, recently, we had a facilitated discussion about promising and best strategies to implement harm reduction in Native communities. And we invited speakers who are Native to talk about what that looks like and the best ways to engage folks. And that was a really great conversation that could be had in a way that folks could talk openly and actually Mm -hmm. discuss some of these issues. So we do try to support a lot of collaboration. And one way just specific to the COVID-19 pandemic through this work, we were able to conduct more typical research-based study just about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on people who use drugs and on harm reduction organizations. So that was a more rigorous approach in which we conducted a literature review and then conducted key informant interviews with 21 harm reduction providers from across the country. And we collated all of that data and issued a report. And that was one way that we were trying to just disseminate sort of what had happened, what folks were experiencing. And then all of those innovations and adaptations that we saw folks had quickly implemented. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years. Working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com. And use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. It's a really good report. I read that report that you guys put together. And we're going to include that link with this podcast that our listeners can go back and take a look at. It's a really worthwhile read. You guys did a very nice job of making it readable. And the way you kind of graphically put some things together, the, the questions you guys asked, different levels very, very interesting process you guys went through to kind of quantify and explain some things that were going on. It's it's clear to see that your goal is to keep people alive. And there are ways for us to do that. 
And while there's clearly a benefit to the value of these harm reduction strategies, and, and I know receiving funding, there's also implementing these strategies at a state and local level, but I know it's not necessarily an easy journey. Tell us about some of the challenges and obstacles yeah. that you guys have faced and faced and, and how you guys are kind of persevering through these to overcome them. Yeah, there are certainly a lot of challenges still, even today in you know, 2021, sadly. I think, unfortunately, many of the obstacles are still rooted in this persistent stigma and discrimination that we see against folks who use drugs and, and the way that you know our society thinks about substance use disorders in general. Yeah. I would say funding is always a challenge. There are certain restrictions at the federal level that still exist that are getting a little bit better, and I'm hopeful will ease up even more in coming years, but really pose challenges for community-based harm reduction programs around what types of supplies they can and cannot purchase. And some of those restrictions also exist at the state level as well. You mentioned criminalization. So mm -hmm. we know the war on drugs has failed. It's failing. It needs to end. That has not helped anyone. It hasn't helped individuals. It hasn't helped communities. Explain a little bit, kind of go into a couple of laps on that for us. It, it, it needs to have a different approach because what we thought might work is not. Help us appreciate why and, and, and what you're recommending instead. Sure, sure. So we treat a substance use disorder, which we know is a classifiable disease that's diagnosable, right? Unique to any other disease that also has a behavioral and a biological component, right? And yeah. we can think of any number of other types of diseases that have behavior and biology that intermix, you know, certain heart diseases, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. But for some reason, you know, we've decided to criminalize substance use disorders and substance use. And what we know based on decades of data is that locking folks up because they have a substance use disorder doesn't reduce their substance use. It doesn't what's known as recidivism. So folks yeah. returning back uh, to the criminal justice system. And it actually leads to many, many more problems for individuals and for communities. So one really startling statistic that always sticks with me is we've seen that when people who have an opioid use disorder are released from a prison setting, it's been shown that their risk of dying from an overdose is 129 times higher than other folks within the first two weeks of oh out of release. And that's just really unacceptable when you think about it from a public health standpoint. And there's many reasons for that, right? So one of the reasons is that when folks are incarcerated, they're often not connected to evidence-based treatment for right. their disease. We are seeing some improvements related to that, which are optimistic, but still the uptake of evidence-based medications such as methadone and buprenorphine really were not accepted in correctional facilities until recently. I, th I think that is changing a bit. And we also know that when folks are returning to using after having not used for a while, they might not know what their limit is in terms of using, and that can lead to overdose as well. Yeah, there's some really big risk factors for relapse and also not just relapse, but for the risk of overdose again and overdose deaths. We, we, we had on our show 
uh, a group of folks from uh, the Pathways Home Program out of New York. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal program. And what they were looking to do is something very similar that you're describing here is they're looking to kind of early identification, early intervention, recognizing that there's a vulnerable risk, was well, vulnerability and a risk secondarily that puts people in a very precarious place. And if we can remove the judgment from that and we can help them navigate some of, in this case, maybe a prison release or, you know, they're just their usage and help them navigate that. And in, 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 when we say successful way, successful here is so they don't die. Yeah. That can be very meaningful. Yeah. I mean, what is more meaningful, right? <laughs> when you yeah. think about it, certainly. And I, and I do just, you know, getting back to sort of the, the war on drugs as a larger picture, I, you know, I'd be totally remiss if I didn't point out that this has disproportionately impacted black and brown folks in our country, right? Yes. So they have really suffered the most due to our racial policies related to criminal justice and law enforcement. And we're also seeing, which I think is important to just highlight in light of the increase in overdose death related to the COVID-19 pandemic, that for the first time, we're seeing higher rates of opioid overdose among Black communities than white, which is really alarming as well. And there's a lot of issues related to that that include the criminalization of drug use, but also access to treatment and access to other evidence-based services that we know white folks are more privileged to receive and communities of color suffer racist policies that lead to disproportionate rates of really inaccess to services and supports. I really like that these you know, strategies, whether it's the syringe service program, whether it's the Narcon distribution to reverse overdoses, it's the drug checking equipment, you know, opportunity that they have, linkage to care, uh, new strategies, never use alone. I love that one. I know Track 8 Exchange in Nevada, they put some vending machines and dispense syringes and Narcan for free, making yeah. these things acceptable and to remove some of the stigma, but also maintaining some anonymity if someone doesn't want to come forth and, and, and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, but they can still get the services and ideally stay alive. And uh, I think that's wonderful. I really do. And I, I, I trust there's got to be a huge need, even coming out of COVID, for these services. I know when I was reading some things, I know Prevention Point Philadelphia distributed 3.2 million syringes in 2019. In 2020, they distributed 5.9 million syringes. So this, this need and the level of service they're providing is significant. I know they did also 11,000 doses of Narcan. And to hope, again, to help reverse the you know overdose when someone gets in, in, in place. That's a ton of work that folks are doing. So you've got this very dedicated group of people that have been persevering and going, going through some of the difficulties and roadblocks, but still staying true to helping people stay alive. It's pretty noteworthy, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And I'm calling in today from Philadelphia. It's my spiritual home and I'm glad to be here. And Prevention Point is an amazing community organization that is really led by the folks that they serve and everyone who works and volunteers there, it just goes above and beyond. And I have to say, you know, when we were collecting data for our environmental scan about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, we managed to talk to every single person we reached out to, accepted our invitation to have a one-hour call, taking time out of their extremely busy and important days to share with us their experiences. And I thought that in and of itself was remarkable. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Give us a, a story or two. 
Sure, sure. So we're calling these folks at a time where it's complete chaos, right? So everything's being shut down. Stay-at-home orders are changing daily. Overdose rates are skyrocketing. And these folks took that hour out of their day to share with us what they learned because, you know, they're based on this value of like sharing with other folks and helping as many people as possible and had faith that we would sort of, you know, disseminate what they had experienced. And it was so remarkable how quickly these organizations had just innovated and adapted and stepped up to this challenge. So one organization had created, and this was the fall of 2020. So we're only, I think less than six months into the pandemic, they had already created a hundred page operations manual for their COVID response. They had created entirely new paid and volunteer positions on how, you know, how to serve now the needs of preventing COVID in light of everything else, had already thought through all of these alternative ways to deliver their services. And it was just so rapid and so quick because they know lives are on the line. So quickly transitioned from in-person services to setting out their table outside to making sure everything was socially distanced, but still find a way to have folks be able to charge their cell phones, which is critical. Mobile services, mail-based services, thinking about how to leverage sort of uh, Zoom and telehealth and technology to stay in touch with participants implementing those never use alone lines. You mentioned the vending machine. So thinking about how to quickly implement strategies like that, where it doesn't require a face-to-face interaction. It was just super incredible to hear everything that at, that these community-based programs had been doing and really had been doing with very little funding, very little support really, and, and really led by volunteers and just driven by the participants that they serve, knowing that lives are on the line. I mean, it really is a matter of life or death. And, and they stepped up to the challenge and it was just remarkable. It's great. It's, it's, it's awesome when there's an opportunity like this and watching people get creative, think outside the box, you know, and kind of maybe even get uncomfortable in the way they brainstorm or what if we did this or what if we consider this and finding that these things in fact can work. If we think about it, again, I'm thinking about the, the pathways home program and I'm, you know, likely plugging them as well in this conversation here that we're having, because they're doing something very similar. They're thinking outside the box to let people stay alive and not that recidivism, right? You talked about going back into whether it's drug use or inpatient, you know, mental health, you know, psychiatric hospitalization. We get to help people stay out of these facilities and stay stay functioning as best they can in ways that they've got the potential to. And these programs that you're talking about that you are administrating are really some life-saving programs here. I know we're kind of coming to the end of our time today, and I would love to hear some resources that you might have for our listeners to take a look at and follow up on. Give us some, give us some resources they could take a look at. Yeah. So the National Council's website is the nationalcouncil.org. And we have a page uh, dedicated to all of our harm reduction resources. A few that we've been able to create over the last year are that environmental scan that I had mentioned that I really think the big takeaway for that at this point of where we're at in the pandemic is really seeing all of those innovative strategies that have been implemented and that communities can learn from. We also recently 
And by recently, I mean yesterday released a resource guide on supporting the use of telehealth and technology-assisted services for people who use drugs. And that's, you know, something that another rapid transition, not just in harm reduction, but all of healthcare is, right, this movement to virtual care. And we know this presents real opportunities, but it also brings a lot of challenges, particularly when you're thinking about a population who... Uh, might be borrowing a phone, might not have stable housing, might not have a safe space to engage in telehealth to talk about confidential issues. So we put together this guide to sort of try to troubleshoot some of those challenges that community-based organizations might have. Really good. Another issue that I haven't mentioned, but certainly is a challenge right now, is the burnout and stress that our care providers are facing. Mm -hmm. And this is real and and this impacts our whole care system. So a few months ago, we hosted a national webinar, the topic of wellness strategies for Mm -hmm. harm reduction providers, particularly during the pandemic, but applicable at any stressful time. And we had folks from different community-based organizations from the country talk about the ways in which they, at an organizational level, have really thought about how to better support their staff. And I think there's a lot of great takeaways for any folks who are providers or administrators from that webinar, and that's on our website as well. I would also definitely encourage folks to visit the National Harm Reduction Coalition Mm -hmm. website for more information on harm reduction. If you're looking for where your closest syringe services program is, the North American Syringe Exchange Network is a great place to check out to see where those community programs are that you can support. And I also just want to mention One of our grantees, Next Distro, they're based in New York, but they provide mail-based harm reduction supplies nationwide. They created this amazing collection of resources that are for people who use drugs and by people who use drugs, and they're available in English and Spanish. And it's just this wealth of information that would be really useful for any organization really to have on hand to share with their community members. Very good. Very good. All of those two, just for our listeners, are going to be up on our site. So I appreciate you kind of naming some of those and things they can look out for. You know, Shannon, as we come kind of to a close for our time today, I'd love you to give our, our, our listeners kind of a takeaway message about kind of the importance of these harm reduction strategies being implemented. Give us a word. So I would say everyone has a role in supporting these strategies and supporting this philosophy of harm reduction. And If I had an ask for your listeners, I would say three things. So the first is really to challenge your own biases. I mentioned, you know, I grew up in a house where my parents used drugs. I came to this field thinking that I was free of any bias, right? Like I understood it all and I was approaching it in the most non-judgmental way. And that's not true. We all carry biases with us. So I really challenge, especially care providers to continue to challenge your own biases. Second, I would say, listen to folks who use drugs. They are the experts. They are the best source of information and they should be involved at every level of anything we want to do to help them. And my third takeaway carry naloxone. Make sure you're equipped to help someone in the case that you see someone having an overdose or suffering from a crisis. And that's a 
sort of easy thing that we can all do about our days. Yeah, I love that takeaway. You know, clearly your programs and what people are, are, are doing are offering some very effective and common sense strategies. And they've been adapting to the needs. They've been innovative around the needs and creative to provide these harm reduction strategies for those who are involved with substance use. And programs like this to me are clearly about people simply caring about one another. And like you said, coming alongside somebody, but not leaving them alone. So really nicely done in what you're doing here through this program, this initiative. And it's going to be fun to watch and see how it continues to grow and the lives basically that it's going to be saving. So very, very nicely done. It's so nice to have been having you with us today and join us in this conversation and kind of sharing with us what's going on with these harm reduction strategies. So thank you very much, Shannon, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me and for discussing such an important topic. I would agree. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Shannon and me today. We always appreciate you being with us. I want to remind you that this episode, its resources, and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So go check out triadhq.com slash BHT today and explore our archives of podcasts and resource materials available to you. And again, thanks for being with us. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.